This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Vietnam veteran, former firefighter, lifeguard, commercial rescue diver, and strength and conditioning guru, Bill Kaiser. Now, Bill was kind enough to invite me to his gym, and I got to tour the entire facility and saw so many innovations when it came to strength and conditioning. On top of that, when we sat down, as you will hear, he has an incredibly powerful and interesting story as well. 
So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, how that came full circle with him working with first responders in the special operations community, mental health, strength and conditioning, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Bill Kaiser. Enjoy. Bill, I want to start by saying thank you. You invited me here to an amazing gym in Fort Lauderdale, which in the, any gym in Fort Lauderdale is going to be amazing because I'm imagining how much the, the rent must be. But, um, you know, you have a, not only an interesting facility or a beautiful facility, but you have shown someone who's been in strength and conditioning for a long, long time, a gamut of technology that I'd never seen before. So, Firstly, thank you so much for the, the show and tell prior to this conversation. Well, it was an honor, James, and uh, I want you to know you are now a premier member of Club 110, as is your whole family. So you have an honorary membership now. Well, thank you so much. So we're sitting in Fort Lauderdale. I want to start at the very beginning of your, your timeline. You've got a very interesting journey in uniform, and then I would argue you're probably more interesting once you transitioned out. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Okay. I could put it all in one word, blessed. I come from a family of nine. So I was born along with my twin sister. I came first, by the way. Um, in 1951 in Palo Alto, California. It's interesting because digging through my father's artifacts and what he called his treasures was a blank check and the check was to the doctor at the hospital that we were delivered at and under the memo it's birth of two twins and I still have that and that's in with his stuff and it'll be passed down to my son and all that so it is interesting uh he was a very interesting man uh, I'll get in more to him and his influence which was huge incredible and st still to this day is but anyway, so I was born. They moved quickly to uh, Miami, Florida, and uh, it was uh, it was a nice uh, a nice place to be growing up. Uh, again, I was right in the middle of the birth order. I had two older sisters, two younger sisters, a twin sister, and a younger brother who was a baby of the family. We're still to this day. We always called him the spoiled one. But uh, long story short, my parents were both Christians and very faith-based, and it was God, family, and country, and in that order, which kind of put things in alignment. And my father had had a very um, impactful experience. Uh, he was uh, raised a farm boy in the, you know, the rurals of Alabama on a watermelon farm. 
I mean, you know, working and playing with sharecroppers. And uh, he was uh, chosen to go to Marion Military Academy, and they had a Civil Air Patrol program there. And uh, he learned to fly at a very early age. So when the war broke out, you know, he kicked off his clodhoppers and, you know, walked barefoot in the town. And, you know, where's the recruiter? I'm signing up. And they said, hey, you got a skill set that uh, we've got a new department called the Army Air Corps. And it's going to be the, you know, the aviation wing of the Army. And he said, sign me up. And uh, he had a very fast uh, career. And uh, he ended up uh, being sent over to Europe as a B-17 bomber pilot. And uh, he quickly made captain. And then he quickly made squadron commander. And uh, at the age of 23 and a half years old, he completed 30 missions over Germany. Some of these daylight bombings, Distinguished Flying Cross Award, few other awards. And uh, I looked at his records a couple of years ago when I was just uh, putting things, you know, in their place uh, to pass on to my son and uh, showed that 15 of the missions, he was the lead squadron commander, which was amazing. And he never talked about that. And he never, you know, said, look at this or look at that. And uh, he just quietly put everything away and moved on with his life and became a Pan American Airlines pilot. And back then, you know, they were, they were the sky gods, you know, first of, uh, you know, to cross the Atlantic, first the Pacific, first around the world. So he really, uh, hooked up with the right people at the right time with the right skill set. And, uh, he was able to have, you know, such a large family and, you know, provide for us all. And my mother remained a stay at home mom, which, you know, we were really blessed about, you know, she was always there and long trips that these, you know, you know, international airline pilots make, you know, the, create the necessity for somebody's got to be at home, especially with all these kids running around. Do you, is it a mom at nine or you start getting into the shepherd realm by that point? I'm sorry, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was a sheepdog at four because I had a twin sister that I, you know, had to take care of. And again, we were assigned, you know, the oldest one looked after the next youngest one, you know, and that's how the birth order, you know, it, it, uh, it bestowed on you, you know, some freedom and then some, uh, you know, accountability too. So, and we all looked up to my oldest sisters. In fact, both of them, Kareen and Carolyn, you know, to this day, you know, they're the, uh, they're the, the staunchest and the, you know, the best and the brightest. So, but anyway, um, yeah, we, uh, we had a real good, uh, family and, you know, he moved us down here and, you know, we went to the beach all the time at the park. Of course, with a family that size, you know, if you go to the movies, it'll break you financially. <laughs> so, but, you know, recreational pursuits was our day-to-day activity, and we could get on our bikes and take off for the whole day and uh, come back, you know, in time for dinner, and that was fine with them, you know. So um, the freedoms were immense, uh, and I kind of took advantage of that. You know, I became very, um, uh, very experience-driven, uh, you know, trying new things, you know, going here, going there. And, you know, places I shouldn't have always, you know, tried or been in. So, you know, I was the black sheep. But, you know, with two older sisters and a twin sister at the time, there were just, you know, four or five of us. And then I had a younger sister, you know. So I was kind of, you know, it was that was the way it was working out. And so be it. And, you know, that's that's proper. You know, I'm the only boy in the family. So but yes, I was very much the sheep herder. And, uh, you know, looked after even my older sisters. It was funny because one of them just reminded me a while back. Uh, I, uh, I came back and I was like 16 or 17 and I came back at 12 o'clock at night and I was, I'd had a couple of beers 
And she's at the front stoop with her boyfriend. It was not a boyfriend, just the day. I didn't know who he was. But, you know, in my, uh, in my state of mind, I challenged him, you know, what are you doing right here? You know, he was kissing her as uh, I was driving up. So I was like, what the hell? <laughs> so, <laughs> and they both had a good laugh about it. I didn't think anything was funny right then. You know, I, don't know, I wanted to throw down. But, uh, you know, she called me down and he laughed. And, you know, he was a lot taller than me. And, you know, it was that bravado, you know, the alcohol gives us, you know, gets us in a lot of trouble. But thankfully she was there and, you know, she turned into the sheepdog and, you know, brought me inside and, you know. <laughs> everything's fine we won't tell mom and you know yeah no he's not going to be looking for you at school on monday you know he's a good guy <laughs> so um but yeah i was overprotective you know especially with my twin sister so but uh it was just a great uh it was a great environment you know you were accountable uh his stories that my dad had you know and uh, and my mom too you know she grew up in the mountains of you know western georgia and uh you know they they had a cow in the backyard and a garden and, you know, it was a victory garden because back then it was the twenties, you know, and the twenties and thirties were kind of hard, you know, and they made do and they did well. And, you know, she would walk donuts down to the factory, you know, six to seven a.m. in the morning before she went to school because her mother had made donuts that she could sell. And, you know, they were coming back with, you know, jingling pockets and a few dollar bills and it was all good. So and they were a large family, too. I think there were nine of them. And more boys than girls or an equal amount, I forget. I had a lot of uncles and aunts at the time, you know. But uh, but anyway, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood, you know. It was really something. The unconditional love was incredible. And I certainly pressed the envelope. I really did, you know. So you're you know, obviously aware of so many people, especially that serve, that do have issues. You know, a lot of us have you know childhood trauma that then goes into the uniform yes. profession yes and one of the the kind of myths that i've unwrapped you know just by chance with all the conversations a lot of time you know we romanticize the world war ii generation right and actually a lot of them did struggle when you hear about granddad yes. you know a lot of times he was a drunk he was he was you know abusive etc cetera, etc cetera. Yes. and it's understandable you know yes. it really is yes it sounds like your dad though was able to overcome that and obviously the proximity of the kill for his kind of position was different too right what do you think were other things that allowed him to to actually kind of transition out healthily unlike some of his peers well, he had a science background because he was going to be a pre, he was going to be a doctor, a country doctor. In fact, he got, uh, he got accepted to Vanderbilt, uh, college and, uh, he, I think he spent a year or two pre-med in there. And then, you know, the, the war had broken out and, you know, he's, uh, you know, like I said, he walked down that path and, you know, signed up. Uh, but he had his bouts. He had his experiences. He had his periods of, uh, you know, uh, depression uh, and a lot of uh, short but intense bouts of alcoholism. You know, and back then that was almost the standard, you know. Now, you know, he he always adhered and abided by, you know, the rules of a pilot. You know, you're, you're, you you got to be 12 hours from your last drink before you, you know, walk into that that plane, you know. And I, I think that's the time, you know, 12 hours was sort of the given, you know. But uh, he always adhered to that. He was an extremely honest man with himself. And his humility was just, uh, I, you know, I still pick up stuff. Um, there's an article on the wall with his picture on the front. And he's in the cabin. And in 1968, he was landing a Pan Am jet at Palm Beach International Airport. And the malfunction occurred that froze and locked the hydraulic brakes on all the wheels. So as soon as he landed, the rubber sheared off the tires right down to the hub. 
And he skidded a thousand feet and managed to keep it on the runway. And the article is, you know, uh, jet blows tires, 98 aboard, unhurt. <laughs> I mean, and it was like how he was able to keep it and the presence of mind. Because, of course, you know, they couldn't diagnose what the problem was. They're landing. They're going through all these, you know, check through procedures. And all of a sudden, it's like, what? what's happening, you know? And he just rose to the occasion and, you know, observe oriented, decided and took action. And, you know, through the rudders and the yoke, kept that on the on the runway, which they said was incredible. In fact, the Miami Herald haunted him for days. We would get phone calls, you know, reporters and, you know, senior senior reporters wanting to interview my dad. My dad said, keep telling him, I have no comment. And I thought, wow, that is so great. He could have, he could have been the hero of the week, you know, interviews and, you know, who knows what could have happened. He could have been on the Today Show if the Today Show existed back then. It might have, I don't know. But anyway, he just had nothing to say other than, you know, you talk to, talk to the people at Pan Am, you know, they're the ones to talk to, not me, you know. And he would often call himself, you know, I was a glorified bus driver. <laughs> <laughs> really, Dad? Four, 400 souls on board, you know? <laughs> you still think you're just a bus driver? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you know? So, but uh, that's how, that's the type of person he was, you know? He took things seriously, but, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't ever, you know, rest on his laurels or, you know, throw things in people's faces or, you know, how great I am, you know? So, anyway, I, I admire that to this day. I wish I could emulate that more. Yeah. When you were talking about that that heroism and saving the lives on that malfunction, it reminds me of Sully, who I'd love to yes. get on here one day. You know, it was it was the angel or the hero of the Hudson, whatever they called him. Yeah. But then you watch the film, we all think, okay, that was it. Yeah, he was a hero. Right. We move on. Like, no, you talk about organizational betrayal. Yes. Here's a man who saved all these lives and they try to throw him under the bus. Yes. Yes. Institutions do that. And their motivations are some sometimes... I'll say varied, many times uh, unfathomable because um, support is when emergencies happen. That's what you need. You need the support of the people above you and below you and next to you, and especially if you pull off something like that. So, you know, not looking for, you know, bouquets, but there should be some kind of acknowledgement that uh, there was, that was above and beyond. And, uh, you know, you did the way you were trained. And you still had to make some wild, off-the-cuff, immediate decisions. Go, no go, do this, don't do that. And, you know, to land on the Hudson River in the winter, wow. <laughs> you know, not knowing the kind of boat traffic that you're, you know, you might encounter, you know, because it's like being in a hang glider. You know, <laughs> when you're out of uh, power, you're landing somewhere. You know, hang gliders have no engine. So, you know, when you're making your, your final, that's final. You will do that. You know, you will land. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So you mentioned about your dad being an influence. Were you dreaming of the military when you were a child then? Um, yes, I was. I was dreaming of, uh, you know, for, you know, during my youth, you know, Roy Rogers, you know, Lone Ranger, you know, I actually I loved horses. You know, I almost uh, it was almost instinctive. I, f I feel like, you know, somewhere in my lineage, you know, there's Indian blood because I had no fear of horses. And it was uh, it was kind of a funny story that my dad told me. He goes, you know, when you first, you know, were around a horse, you wanted to climb up one of his legs to ride him. 
He goes, you were really insistent, and, you know, you burst out crying that you couldn't ride this horse. And when our horse, you know, we just stopped because we were driving along, you know, and the horses came up, and we had a couple of apples that, you know, we were going to feed them. You know, we were on our way to vacation. You know, we were in the in the country going up to Daytona Beach, you know. And uh, he said it was the funniest thing. You know, we thought, you know, you acted like you owned the horse. And he kept telling us, I know how to ride. I know how to ride. <laughs> and it Three and a half. We knew you didn't, <laughs> you know. So anyway. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there were many things that I wanted to do. But the common denominator was, you know, I wanted to make a life of, uh, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to, you know, be on the right side of um, of the law, <laughs> you know, of, uh, you know, smart uh, smart moves. And, uh, and that wasn't always the case, you know. Uh, there's... There's a lot of risk taking that I had, you know, in my teen years. And I started to sway away from, you know, formal education. I really was not liking school. You know, I did not like being pinned up and, you know, 45 minutes of exercise and then you got to go back in. And uh, what I was, you know, being taught, I really didn't see a lot of relevance to. Um, Of course, it was relevant. But, you know, I wanted to, you know, go experience things. And in a way, my dad spoiled me because he would take me on trips places and, you know, we'd go for long walks, whether it be urban or rural. And, you know, he'd stop me and go, now look around, look around, all the way around, 180 degrees, 360 degrees, look around and remember this. He goes, remember this point. And he would pick, you know, one of his favorite points. He was a walker. You know, he would go to a city and, you know, a lot of times with these propeller-driven airplanes, their layover, because the flight was so long, say from San Francisco to Honolulu or to Wake Island, to in route to Shanghai, you know, China, or, you know, to Gusagalpa, it would be, you know, a lot of hours, you know, in the in the left seat, you know, as captain or the right seat as first officer. And uh, they'd have like two, three, four-day layovers, you know, required. So uh, it was a good thing, and uh, that gave them a lot of time to either get in trouble or get fit or, you know, and uh, he chose to get fit. So he's the original fitness nut. That's, that's where I get my legacy and my, you know, I won't say a gift, but my propensity for exercise and wanting to be, you know, be into training. I was, I was, I was happy in that element, and uh, I liked it. It was... Uh, you know, there's a book, you know, the, the the soul of the long distance runner or something like that. You can get so introspective. And to me, it was an opportunity to defrag. So the, the endurance events that I gravitated to to help me with, you know, things like my PTS was, uh, was you know, uh, regular, rather than team sports, I really chose, you know, the, the, the single, you know, person against the elements. And uh, I would go out to the Everglades, you know, on weekends or, you know, in the summer for extended periods of time, you know, with just a backpack and, you know, enough food for three or four days and not even a tent, you know, just a sleeping bag. You know, in the wet times, I had a hammock so I could, you know, stay above the wet ground. But I would go in alone and, you know, three or four days. And uh, it's how I was able to navigate Vietnam so well. You know, I, I knew a compass. I, I, you know, I knew a map. And, uh, you know, my dad taught me a little bit of, you know, reckoning. And uh, it was uh, these were skills that came in very handy. So I was uh, I was kind of a, a, a single soul for for a lot of my my periods, which I enjoyed. I relished. I look forward to, you know, I like challenges. Well, you talked about Vietnam. So walk me through 
high school graduation into the military then? Well, graduation didn't occur because I quit school between the 10th and 11th grade because I just wasn't learning anything. I wasn't productive. My dad said, hey, you know, I know you don't want to waste your time, do you? I go, no, this has been a waste of time. And he goes, oh, if you're not interested anymore, he goes, you know, what are you going to do? And I say, well, I think I want to, you know, travel. And he goes, well, how are you going to travel? And I go, well, you know, you're a, can- you're a Pan Am captain. I can get free tickets. He goes, no, 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 it's not going to work that way. He goes, you got to get a job. In fact, you know, it's getting kind of tight around here. And if you're not going to go to school, then you're going to have to find your own place to live and get a job. I go, okay. So, you know, I went down to the you know, nearest construction company and, you know, hired on as a carpenter's helper, learned a few skills in a couple of months. I got tired of that and uh, found a place, and it was Ocean Reef Yacht Club. And back in 1968 through 70, they were revamping the whole thing, you know, tearing it down. It was an old yacht club, you know, in Key, in Key, uh, Key Largo is where it was. So it was, you know, an hour drive from where we lived in Miami. And uh, I moved down there, and it was free room and board because they couldn't find enough, you know, tradesmen and day laborers, you know, around there. Everybody was in the shrimping business or or running drugs. <laughs> you know, so, um, so anyway, so I hired onto that and did very well. I, you know, was working 70 hours a week, 10 hours a day, seven days a week. I do that for a couple of weeks and take three or four, four days off and spend all that money. And back then, I think I was making $4.20 an hour as a carpenter's helper, you know, an apprentice. And I was learning good skills, you know, framing houses and, you know, laying tile and stuff like that. And uh, so I would make 420 for 40 hours, and I took the other 30 on, and it was time and a half, so it was like 610 or something like that. So, uh, so you know, 40 hours at 420, you know, back then that was big money. And, you know, come back and, you know, date and play and eat and sleep and, you know, spend, spend my money, and that was good. And, but I was still saving for that, uh, for that trip. I wanted to start taking trips. So when he saw I was responsible and I was paying my own way and then some, um, he said, yeah, he goes, uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you a ticket where you want to go. And I said, well, I want to go to Europe. And he goes, ah, you know, Europe is a general thing. He goes, let me recommend, why don't you go to Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark? He goes, nice people, you know, very up, you know, and coming, you know, they're metropolitan. Also, there's a lot of rural areas. You'll love the, the fjords and the mountains and the forests of Norway. Denmark's nice, you know, that's good for biking. I recommend you taking some biking there. And Holland, too. Bikes everywhere, son. They have them over there where you can just pick them up and drop them off wherever you want to. I was like, well, that sounds good, you know. Save me money from having to buy a bike while I'm over there. So I spent a better part of a summer uh, traveling around, backpacking, uh, you know, Scandinavia. And, uh, you know, my challenge was, you know, I want to get above the Arctic Circle and go swimming. Because, you know, the water was freezing, you know, (laughs) crazy thing, you know, but you could stay in a hostel for less than $2 a night. And that included a continental breakfast, which for them was a a piece of toast and uh, a hard boiled egg and uh, and a a glass of milk. And uh, I would eat that. But, you know, with my metabolism, I'd. You know, in this, when this was in Oslo or Bergen in Norway, you could go down to the docks and the people coming in from overnight fishing or shrimping would cook some of their catch. And on the way in, and by the time the, the boats arrived at the piers at the docks, you could go out there and buy it for nothing. So I was buying shrimp that had been 
flash, you know, uh, uh, boiled and, you know, all this protein, all this good food. And I was like raring to go. I was like, this is the, this is the life. You know, I could, I could be a vagabond. You know, I could, I could do this for a long time, but my money ran out. So anyway, I still have the map up there and, uh, it's in that bag right there. So, uh, I look back on that and I look at the back of it and left with $143, came back with 28. (laughs) But what they didn't tell you was I worked sometimes and it was to get my food and board. And uh, I would go to a college dorm and this was in the summertime. So the dorms were being converted to being temporary hostels. So you could stay in a dorm room. And I was starting to hang out with the college people that were there for the summer. And, uh, and also the people that worked in the kitchen, you know, I'd work a couple of days and, you know, get fat again and, you know, take off for a couple of days and not eat, but, you know, travel and play. So it was a great lifestyle for me, but it was temporary. And I started to notice, you know, hey, these college kids are pretty sharp. You know, I'd go to the bars at night and nobody was asking, you know, for ID. Uh, I tried to grow a beard. I <laughs> couldn't, but uh, I was able to, you know, uh, mix and I got, you know, I got kind of a social uh, experience there where I, most of the time I was kind of a sole, uh, sole individual um, and started to, you know, like the environment. And, you know, they they played a lot and they, you know, big on recreation and, you know, they were reading the right books and, you know, asking the right questions. And, you know, it was just uh, it was good. It was good. And I was hearing, a, you know, a few things that were anti-war. You know, but in a good way. It was philosophical. You know, let's explore why. Why do we have to go over there? Why do, why are we there? You know, and they were kind of, you know, alluding to the big military industrial complex. And, you know, Eisenhower said it back in the 50s, you know, be, or the end of the 50s or 60s. Be very careful, America. You know, as I retire, and this is my parting shot, you know, the military industrial complex is out to, you know, control a lot of America, if not the world. And we see how that's evolved. So not to get political, but back then I was just another element that was helping me mature toward getting a more worldview. And I appreciated other cultures, especially the Norwegians. Fiery, fiery people, fair-minded, big sportsmen. You know, that they, they dominated the Nordic uh, competitions in the Olympics for years. Small country. But if you remember your history, you know, they did not capitulate to Nazi uh, uh, Germany, you know, they fought the fought the Nazis vehemently, you know, now they couldn't do anything about, you know, these huge hordes of, uh, you know, Nazi troops coming in and, you know, the ships that were using their harbors, but uh, there was a lot of sabotage going on. And uh, they're very proud of that. And, you know, they, they lionized the, uh, the commandos that uh, worked in unison with the English and with the Americans, and, you know, took out, uh, you know, light water f- uh, plants and facilities and, you know, brought people in and out of, uh, you know, austere environments so they could, you know, make their hit and, you know, extricate themselves. So there's a, if anybody who looks at that, there was one of the first commando elements that uh, really uh, worked with almost nothing. And uh, they were very proud of that. And their neighbors, the Swedes and the Finns, you know, weren't as uh, as uh, fiercely independent. Uh, you know, they were sort they sort of acquiesced, you know, because it was just a huge, you know, well, the stormtroopers, you know, Blitzkrieg, you know, one day they're not there and all of a sudden they're here and, you know, they come in armed. And it, it speaks well and bodes well for, you know, people remembering that, you know, an armed citizenry is important and uh, it's uh, it's just important. So anyway, so I was in, you know, Europe for for a couple of months and came back and said, you know what, I, uh, 
I think I, uh, I think I want to move on. And uh, he goes, well, what? He goes, you know, you can't go back to high school. I said, no, no, no. I, you know, and there's a GED. I said, I, I think I want to, I think I want to join the Air Force like you. And he said, well, I'll take you down there. So he took me down to recruiter and he goes, well, don't just look at the Air Force. Look at what the Army's going to give you. And, uh, you know, I, go, I don't want to be in the Navy, you know, it's either Army or Air Force. And I like the Ranger concept and the credo, but the Air Force, like I mentioned to you before, you know, I had direct uh, connotation and correlation and information from a uncle of mine who was a fighter pilot, you know, uh, in the Korean War and World War II. He was a fighter pilot in World War II. And uh, he told me about the uh, heroism of the U.S. Air Force uh, PJs or pararescue teams. And, uh, you know, he related his own experience. And when I heard that, I said, well, that's could there be a greater hero than, you know, that others may live? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's uh, that's that speaks sacrifice and selflessness right from their very first day. So I approached the recruiter. I told him what I wanted. He asked me my education. I said, I'm a high school dropout. But uh, I took your ASVAB test and I passed everything but the math. I said I failed miserably on the math. But everything else I scored high on. And he goes, okay, well, you know, you'll take it again right here. And, you know, I'll set it up for you. And uh, we'll decide. And uh, I did. I tested high. And, uh, again, I failed miserably in math. He said, well, don't worry about that. He goes, now, we can – we'll enlist you. But for people that are high school dropouts and don't yet have a high school education, you have to agree. And you're going to have to sign that you will get a high school education within the first 12 months of being active duty in the Air Force. Otherwise, that's it. So the 366th day, you're out. So I complied, and I got the GED, no problem. But uh, what he had failed to tell me was that uh, he also knew that as not as, as a non-high school graduate, pararescue was not interested in me. So... And so I came in under what was called Project Guarantee, which was a program that, yes, we'll take non-high school graduates, but we'll put them where we need them the most. And where they needed them the most was security forces because everybody was going to Vietnam and especially the Air Force. They were building up their bases over there astronomically. So it's like, well, we need perimeter defense. You know, we're getting, you know, all sorts of, you know, enemy contact. You know, we need to put boots outside the perimeter. So you put on your questionnaire that you like dogs and you work with dogs. What kind of dogs with these? And I said, well, German Shepherds, because my family raised German Shepherds. <laughs> I can remember him saying, all right, perfect. <laughs> so that was that. So unbeknownst to me, though, because I told him, I said, now, how do I, you know, take the test for pararescue? He goes, well, you do that in boot camp. And he goes, you know, they'll come and they'll ask for volunteers. And, uh, you know, you just raise your hand then and they'll give you another test. And it's going to be kind of tough. But, you know, if you can make it, you know, you might be a candidate for their school. He goes, but it's a two-year course. It's not easy. You know, you get into diving. You get into parachuting. You get into medical. And not just like I got, I got more interested the more I heard of the task and the certification. So I was good to go. But, you know, that didn't go as planned. So, Act two. So I'm in boot camp. We're coming on our third, three more weeks to go. And I go, where are the PJ recruiters? They were supposed to be somebody coming in and pitching pararescue to us. You know, where is it? And the DI said, well, no, son, you're in this squadron because you're project guarantee. I go, what's project guarantee? He goes, oh, they didn't tell you. 
well, I hate to break it to you, but you're a, you're going to be a security policeman. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. And he goes, oh, yeah, you are. And he was right and I was wrong, but I fought it the whole way. And I did what I could and I really alienated myself and uh, sort of took it too far. And uh, I went ahead and complied and stayed in active duty. But that was my first uh, raw uh, sort of a deceitful, um, you know, we don't care what you think, what you can do. You know, you you think you can earn it. We're not even going to give you the chance to. And that's all I asked for. Just give me a chance. I'll show you how good I am. Yeah. But uh, that didn't occur. So that was a big surprise, big disappointment. And it kind of uh, set uh, set me in the wrong track as far as, you know, trusting big institutions like the Air Force and government. So what was your experience in Vietnam then? I mean, you're on the security side. So, you know, what what did that kind of movie look like through your eyes? Well, by the time I got to Vietnam, I was over my pity party. And it's like, you know what, uh, I'm just going to have to make the best of things. And they go, we need volunteers for K-9. They go, yeah, no, I thought I was going to be in K-9. They go, oh, no, you got to qualify for this. And, you know, because these sentry dogs, these were badass dogs, you know. And, again, they were rotated by their their trainers, you know, their their handlers, you know, would rotate in and out every year. But they stayed. I mean, the dog that I got had been there three years, which to me was a big, big plus because this dog, Max, I mean, <laughs> he took care of everybody on the team. So we went out in 12-man teams, and it was joint for us. We had Republic of Korea Marines. We had a couple of U.S. Marines. We had two Army Rangers that had been through the navigation, or what they call the Pathfinder. So everybody had a skill set. So mine was I'm the canine handler, so I'm point, or sometimes I'm drag in the back. But most of the time I'm point. And they needed medics. So I volunteered to also be cross-trained as a medic. And that was something I'd always been interested in. It goes way back, you know. Um, I was able to tend my own wounds because my grandmother was a nurse, and she would show me how to dress a wound and clean it up. And my dad was pre-med Vanderbilt, so he gave me his medic pouch that he carried when he was, you know, on a bomber crew. And, uh, you know, his 30 missions, to me, that was, you know, the gift and, you know, it had all the cool stuff in there. And he taught me how to, you know, sling and swath and, you know, for a broken arm and all this. It was great. He, he knew what he was doing. He was really drawing me into emergency medicine. So anyway, um, so I volunteered as a medic and, uh, and I was cross-trained there. Uh, so I had high value with the teams. And my dog was experienced. So I was uh, – people wanted me on their teams. More for the dog. The dog was experienced. Max just knew everything. Uh, Max was not just a sentry dog, you know, de- you know, trained to detect movement, sound, and then be aggressive when the time came. That dog was more of a scout dog. That dog, uh, he, he knew the trails because he'd been in the Dang, Da Nang area the whole time. So, and he was not affected by illumination flares, not affected by any kind of explosions, no sounds. Sometimes I thought he was half deaf, but then I would hear, I would see his ears preak up. And we, we were on post and, you know, I was behind him. And, you know, sometimes even in the summertime, you know, if it rains all day, you know, you're losing your body heat. And I was, you know, I'd be near freezing at night because it would drop 20 or 30 degrees. And now it's damp and, you know, dark and cold, you know, windy. Sometimes we were on a, you know, a lot of times we'd be on a ridge line just below the peak so that we could observe, you know, the, the area below us and give the dog, you know, free, free vision. 
And the dogs were so adept at detecting movement as well as sounds. So it was great. So if we could perch there, we would. But what I would do is to try and stay warm, I would take my my uh, my uh, poncho liner, which was really just a nylon blanket, but a big one. And it always, you know, would dry out real quick. I mean, it was brilliant. I still have one today from 50, 60 years ago. Anyway, I would uh, drape it around me and him. And uh, his body heat would help me and my body heat would help him. And plus, I could detect movement. And so, you know, the time when I'd, you know, kind of, you know, think I'm drifting off all of a sudden, you know, hit shift weight or hit, you know, sniff or his ears would perk or his head would come forward. And it would wake me up. It's like, he's on alert. No, he's not on alert. Okay, good. You know, so it was uh, it was a great um, teamwork sort of thing. And uh, the people that uh, we were responsible for, you know, that were in a, a semi-pattern, you know, trying to get a couple of Zs, um, or half of them anyway, um, you know, were very appreciative that we had an animal that had 10 times the vision and 100 times the smell capability as us, you know, because all we could smell were ourselves. And, you know, and, uh, you know, we couldn't see shit. So... Long story short, uh, we had a very uh, rewarding, positive reinforcement experience over there. And uh, it sort of calmed me down a little bit because uh, there was a pararescue squadron at Da Nang, the 37th, and they were famous because up at Da Nang, you know, right through the DMZ, you know, Cambodia is right next door. Laos is not far away. North Vietnam is right across. You know, they were a very active pararescue team. So they had a lot of lot of action, a lot of rescues. And uh, I thought if anywhere I can sneak into a pararescue unit and prove myself and, you know, get on with them, that would be the place. And I had been at two previous uh, uh, bases, you know, uh, but my last six months was at Da Nang, and, which was a good thing. So anyway, long story short, um, I was able to approach the 37th. And uh, let them know that, uh, you know, I'm here. I got a dog. Uh, if you guys are thinking about, you know, uh, I heard that, you know, you guys were thinking about using dogs because, uh, you know, finding the pilots sometimes is, is a real challenge. Uh, sometimes these uh, pilots would eject, you know, unbeknownst to them. Now they're, you know, going through, they're penetrating, you know, three different uh, covers, you know, the tall trees that sometimes were 300 feet high. And then you've got a second zone where it's the, you know, the middle density of the forestry. And then you've got, you've got ferns that could be five or six feet high. So it's really hard to find somebody. Now they had EPIRBs, these emergency position indicating radio beacons, but they weren't always effective. And a lot of times they would get damaged when the pilots ejected. And also because the F4s, something was happening with the explosive bolts. I heard, I don't know, but they were getting a lot of head injuries. So they were being ejected into the canopy as the canopy was coming up but not yet deployed and behind them. So they were sustaining head fractures and, you know, they would lose consciousness uh, on the way down while they were, you know, coming down in a chute. So anyway, there were a lot of injuries occurred through ejections uh, or being shot down. So they could use the dog. So they tried it for a little bit, but uh, it, quickly, within a week, they abandoned that idea and that concept. But they allowed two of us to stay on. And they said, you know, you, you can't, you can't, 
call yourself a PJ. You can't do anything that, you know, like what we're doing, but you can ride with us. We need an extra pair of hands. We need extra scanner. You know, we're going to put you in that left seat there. You're going to look out the window. You know, don't say anything over comms unless you see something, you know, anti-aircraft fire or, you know, something that uh, we need to be aware of. It's like, and then shut up, you know. Okay, absolutely, you know. So, and then that transitioned into, hey, hold this bag, you know, make like an IV hanger, don't move. And, you know, hey, you know, help me do this, hold that. So pretty soon, you know, they started to slowly accept you as an air crew member, but still, you know, nowhere near what a PJ could do and was doing. But I got a taste of it. I got a look at it. And it was like, yes, this is my destiny. This is what I, you know, really want to be. When I think of Vietnam, World War, uh, excuse me, Vietnam era PJs, um, I had a, the director of The Last Full Measure and it told the story oh. of William Pitsenberger. Pitsenberger. Thank yes. you. I'm glad you said that because the word I had written down was wrong, oh. but yeah. Um, and so yeah, that, that heroism of a PJ that literally could have, you know, extracted and gone back to the base, right. stayed there. Right. And they just, it was funny, right? When we did the interview, I think sh- just before that, they finally awarded him the Medal of Honor. You yes. Know, but yes. decades later. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. But I have to tell you, in all honesty, what Pitsenbarger did was not unusual for what PJs were doing all the time. These guys were fearless. I mean, I, 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 I saw... I saw heroism on a regular basis. So a lot of people that have come on here that are Vietnam veterans, we talked about at least the facade of the ticker tapes of the World War II vet. Yeah. Vietnam was a very different conflict and was very jarring for a lot of veterans that gave everything out there and lost friends and limbs and, you know, mental health. And then they're spat on, pissed on all the stories that I've heard. What was your homecoming story? Well, um, <laughs> it was interesting. Um, I had, I left good friends back in America. Okay. And I came back to good friends and their first reaction was, we don't know what you went through. We just want you to know that we're here for you. And it was like the next door neighbor said it as well as a guy that I, met when I was, you know, four or five years old, you know, contacted me. Hey, we haven't talked in 15 years. Just want you to know that, you know, I heard you were back. You know, your mother spoke with my mother and it passed on to me and you're back and, you know, sound like you're in one piece and, you know, would love to get together with you. Not to tell me anything about the war. I'm just here for you. And, you know, if if uh, if we could restate this friendship and re you know re resume it, I'd be I'd be I'd be really up for that, which was great. Yes, right. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, <coughs> as soon as I got back, <clears throat> I went into college, and I started taking full time courses at night at Miami Dade College in Miami, Florida, and I got a job as a lifeguard on Key Biscayne. And, you know, it was, it was great because I could, they, they, the, the commander of the lifeguard department, he, there were a few of us that were Vietnam veterans and the ones that were in school, he would give us outlying, uh, guards, uh, houses so that they wouldn't be heavily populated. And he goes, 
if it's not nobody around, you can go ahead and you can study. But I want you looking forward. I want you bringing up. I want you scanning. I don't want anything to happen. When somebody gets on your beach, especially if there's children around, you got to pay attention. You got to have eyes on. Yeah. He goes, but we know, you know, on rainy days, it's going to be deserted up there. And you'll be alone and you can read and you can study and that sort of thing, you know. But it's either a book or a radio. You could play the radio, okay, or you could play music, but you had to be up and around and looking. Or you could be reading a book on the outlier stations, the post. But, you know, so it was great. So I was able to, you know, make A's and B's all the way through college. And here I am, you know, a high school dropout. But I was highly motivated. You know, I wanted to get more into paramedicine. I was actually entertaining, you know, hey, I could be a doctor, you know, a good ER. Because what I was doing in Vietnam and what these guys were showing me what to do were advanced medical procedures. I mean, these pararescue men are trained for so much. I mean, nothing rattled them. And they just, you know, they had a, they had a process, you know, it was, you know, they knew the mnemonics, they knew the acronyms, you know, they could talk in language that, what did he say? You know, what is, what is, you know, what is the MOD? What is that? You know, what is that? You know, and so I wanted to learn that, you know, and uh, their skill sets were incredible because they were functional, they were academic, they were intellectual, they were, they were spiritual. I mean, these guys were, you know, they were stoics, but they were intelligent, humble, and just, you know, you, you knew you could count on them and depend on them. And you knew that they would look after you before they would look after themselves. And that's hard to find in war. <laughs> yeah. So you're lifeguarding. How did that path take you to the world of the fire service? Um, because a lot of firefighters are off days. They were lifeguards because it was such a cush job being out there on the beach and all. And for Vietnam veterans, it was like, this is paradise. You know, I mean, this is great. And growing up in Miami, I mean, we could bike to the beach. So, you know, I was at the beach all the time. So I was a real good ocean swimmer. I, you know, and I had no, no fear really. You know, my dad explained to me, you know, I remember him showing me a tiger shark that had washed up at this place on Rickenbacker Causeway on your way over to Key Biscayne. When we were children in Miami, he would take us to this little beach and it was like a little private beach. It's called Bear Cut. But the Bear Cut Inlet was a real strong current that came in and out. And sharks were all over that current because they could wait for fish to come through, you know, going with the current. And, you know, they had their Just meal come their to them. Yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was like, you know, takeout, you know, brought to them. So anyway, so it was a it was a known shark haven. And my dad and I swam there all the time. And we swam one time across the whole inlet. And, you know, I got tired. And he goes, oh, no, I just hop on my back. And he was actually swimming with me holding on, I'm still kicking, but I was holding on on his back and I was realizing this guy is so powerful that I'm confident and he's not even getting winded at all. And he's, he's letting me ride him. And it was like, and I felt so secure. That was one of the peak moments that I had with my father and he never knew about it until years later when I told him, I said, one of the most powerful things I ever saw you do. I was feeling it at the same time because you were doing a, a, a broad stroke and then you'd switch. So you were switching strokes. And I know now that that's because you didn't want to get fatigued or, you know, didn't want to do it too much. I go, but I never felt safer. And before, I mean, it was like weeks or months or even a year before we had seen a tiger shark that had washed up 
on the uh, on the beach, uh, and you know it was just laying there, and you know nobody had moved it away, and it was like a fresh, uh, you know, a beach. So I'm like, I'm looking at that thing, and I'm like, that is big, and it was. It was about seven or eight feet, and to you know a three or four year old. That's, that's real big. That's yours. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, right, you know. And it was a mean-looking son of a bitch, you know. And my dad said, oh, no, because they're not interested in us. He goes, no, they go after fish, son. They don't, they don't, they aren't interested in us. Because when was the last time you heard somebody with a, you know, got uh, bit by a shark? And we swim here all the time, you know. So anyway, so it was like, oh, okay, good, I'm glad. <laughs> but, you know, so, um, so yeah, so water was comfortable to me. The environment was good, allowed me to study and, and keep my grades good. And, uh, you know, I could come back and say, hey, Dad, you know, uh, your son, you know, went from a high school dropout to, you know, now he's just about ready to get his uh, associate's degree. He goes, good, son. He goes, yeah, yeah, what can I do for you? I, I want to give you a graduation gift. And I go, oh. Okay. I go, well, remember that trip I was asking about years ago? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's still, yeah, you, you want to go? Where do you want to go? I said, I want to go around the world. He goes, oh. <laughs> well, how long you ten- he's planning on being? I said, as long as it takes. And he goes, well, he goes, uh, you know, you'll need more money than, you know, what your other trips involved. And I go, yeah, I know. And so uh, I was making good money and saved a lot. And so he gave me a trip around the world. And back then, dependents, you know, were treated just almost like employees with Pan American. It's a great family, great, great work uh, environment. You know, they took really good care of their of their workers. So it cost me a total to go around the world. And I think I hit like 14 countries, uh, every continent but Antarctica and uh, didn't go to Australia either. Wish I had. But anyway, I stayed more closer to the equator. You know, I like the weather <laughs> there. And uh, I got it, it, did it for $39. Cost me $39. Yeah. And again, backpacking. I knew the youth hostel arrangement. I got a Eurail pass, you know, and I stayed in Europe for about, I guess, about three months, 12 weeks. And uh, at the time, I had a girlfriend. And uh, I told her, I said, well, you know, I'm going to be gone for a while and uh, have fun. And she goes, well, I think I want to go too. And I go, I'm going around the world. And she goes, well, how about if I meet you somewhere? And I thought, and I go, well, yeah. I said, you know, you'd like Norway. And she'd heard me talk about Norway anyway. And she goes, yeah. And I go, tell you what. I go, I've got things to do. I want to go down to Africa. I want to see Morocco. I want to see Tunisia. You know, I want to, I want to get to the Atlas Mountains. I heard the climbing was really good there. And uh, the people, you know, were kind of positive. And uh, I said, you know, North Africa is something that I is close enough to Europe. I can go right across the Straits of Gibraltar, you know, and, you know, the people are friendly. And uh, I think I'm going to check that out. She goes, OK. She goes, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hang around Europe. And why don't we meet in 12 in six weeks and then we'll travel for six weeks. So that sounded like a good idea. So we both left about the same time, and she hung basically she hung around Scandinavia. She liked it so much: Denmark, Sweden, Sweden, and Finland. Uh, not Finland, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And uh, so she did her thing, I did mine, and then we met up and uh, at the American Express office in Oslo, Norway, on a cold morning. And I'd gone four days straight 
on the rail system. And it took me three days to get through Spain. And I'm like, holy crap, I'm not going to make it. And I couldn't get in touch with her other than letter. You know, there was no cell phones then or anything like that. And I didn't know where she was. She was in hostels too. You know, it was just meet me here at this date at this time in the morning, you know, but I made it and I've just made it. And she did too. And so we traveled together for six weeks and it was, uh, it was a great time. So we had, I had a good trip. And then we, we split up in Greece and, in Athens, Greece, she flew back to the States and I kept going east. And my next stop was either Iran or India. I forget which one, but, uh, it was, uh, it was quite an adventure. And my dad really, uh, liked the fact that, you know, I still had the wanderlust and I, he was still able to do that for me. And that was the best graduation gift I'd ever heard of, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, you know, gave up my job as a lifeguard. And then uh, went back and then got into um, the fire service uh, or wanted to and, you know, had to start as being a medic first. But there was a period of time where I was, you know, building tennis courts and because I still had some school I wanted to go through. I thought I was going to get a four year. And uh, so, you know, that, but that got kind of interrupted. So how many years did you end up spending with? Was it in Lauderdale? Was it one of the surrounding areas? Uh, Miami. Miami. I was in Miami. See, yeah. Miami or Miami? See, well, uh, South Me- Miami. Yeah, Pinecrest area. Okay. Yeah, where I grew up. Yeah, right. And so how many years did you spend in that profession? Um, and then what was it that took you out? Uh, there was an opportunity to uh, to go up to Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, we had been dating for a couple of years. And she eventually turned into being my wife for almost 30 years. So that was uh, that was a positive thing. So we were getting closer and closer. And I said, I really, you know, you like North Carolina. Your parents have a cabin up here. We've gone up a few summers. We really like it. Why don't we, you know, spend a couple of years in Charlotte, North Carolina and get away from, you know, Miami? You know, we're kind of tired of it and done about everything to do in there. And so we did. So we went up to Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I got uh, enrolled in Central Piedmont Community College and enrolled in the fire science technology and there's my degree up there for what it's worth. It's right up there. The old, oh, I see it. Yep. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it, uh, it's kind of overrated because it all boils down to putting the wet stuff on the red stuff, right? <laughs> you know, but I learned hydraulics. I learned fire science. And uh, it gave me a, a, uh, a qualification and it, uh, it, it made me more attractive to those that were hiring. And then also to get into the officer corps and to take a position of leadership. So it paid, it paid for the time and the effort, but it was tough because, you know, I was working, you know, as a medic and, you know, sometimes, you know, 48 hour shifts, you know, like how you relate, you know, sometimes it's mandatory and sometimes it takes a week to get over a 24 hour shift. You know, I remember one time right before my first son was born, you know, money was tight. And, uh, and at the time when I found out that she was pregnant, then I said, well, right now we're in an apartment. I said, but we're not going to be in an apartment when he's born. I said, we're going to have a house and I don't know how we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And we did it, you know, a nice custom house. You know, I bought land uh, outside of Charlotte and, uh, you know, got a contractor and, you know, got a mortgage and, you know, said, you know, whatever it takes, I'll have that money. Uh, You know, back then, you know, the interest rate was high, but, uh, the houses were cheap. You know, so I was able to buy the land, quarter acre in the woods, nice area, $10,000. Then uh, the house to build was 32000 So 42000 I'm all in, you know, 1,600 square feet in the woods in the country, but, you know, proximate to Charlotte, North Carolina. 
turned out to be a great suburb, great uh, thing. So anyway, uh, and I was working for, uh, you know, Medic, uh, uh, Charlotte, uh, or Mecklenburg County Ambulance Service, you know, which was affiliated with the fire department, but the fire department was starting to get into paramedicine too. But they resisted it, you know. The old guys did not want that, that other task. You know, they wanted to fight fires, and that was it. And they had a few fires there, but nothing that would justify having, you know, a crew of eight, you know, all around the, you know, the city and the county, you know. So anyway, when they brought paramedicine in, I'm like, yeah, absolutely, yeah, make me a firefighter paramedic. You know, in fact, the first interview I had, they go, why do you want to be a firefighter? I go, I don't. I want to be a paramedic on a fire department. Okay, I was a paramedic on an ambulance service, and it's crap. You know, they treat you like crap because they, you know, they can hire an ambulance driver anytime. And, you know, the medics, they don't care if you're just an EMT. I want to be a paramedic, advanced paramedic. I want to be an officer. And the fire department's the best place. So it was a, it was a brief interview. <laughs> but he understood what I was getting at, you know. So anyway, so it worked out all well. So what took you out of that profession? How many years did you spend and then what took you out? Uh, money, actually. Um, I couldn't make enough money to support a new baby and a wife to be able to stay at home. And that was the thing is that I was very clear on, you know, I really want you to put 100% time and effort into the, our children. You know, now when they go to school, you know, second, third grade, you know, they're, they're, they're good to go. You know, you can go back to work, but for the time being, you know, let me work. You stay at home, you feather the nest, you take care of the child. I knew how important early child development is because I saw the children that were born before me and the children that were born after me and my own experience having my own mother be at home for all of us all the time. She was always there. So we had a rock of Gibraltar at home. There was no abandonment issues. There were no, where's, where are my parents? You know, nobody's caring for me. I can't go to anybody and get an explanation for this or that. And I've always got a caring, you know, a caring heart, you know, uh, you know, sometimes a hard hand, but a caring heart, you know. Uh, but anyway, it, uh, it was something that was very important to me. And fortunately for me, it was important to her too. So, uh, but I couldn't work hard enough because you weren't being paid a lot back then, you know, and, uh, and, and I was, I was just being worked from one job to another job to another job and, you know, minimal benefits, you know, no overtime because I was a cook at a, um, at a fish house, you know, uh, nights, a couple of nights a week. And that was good because I could bring home fish and bring home hush puppies, you know, but you get tired of that after a month. You know, I didn't want to look at fish. And then I'd be a, in the summertime, I'd be on a construction crew and, you know, somebody young and, you know, fit, you know, they're going to put me right on the roof doing, you know, trusses and, you know, it was hard, you know, dangerous work. And, uh, and in the wintertime, it was no better. So, uh, so I was doing three jobs, you know, and I was just burning myself out. And then, you know, I'd try and, you know, work extra, uh, with the, with the ambulance service. And one time I did a 96 hour and it was, it took me a week and I said, I'll never do that again. And then I saw my paycheck. They took so much more out, you know, because I worked overtime. So, you know, the, the disbursements went up and I'm like, I, I ended up making like 12 bucks an hour for, you know, being at the four busiest stations, you know, working 20 calls a day for four days. 
you know, and Charlotte was knife and gun town. You know, there was a lot of trauma. It's beautiful now. They, it they, must, they must have done some some good things politically because yeah. I just went there just to to MC uh, a fundraiser for um, Operation Enduring Warrior, which is a great organization. And uh, yeah, it was it was beautiful. There. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, it is nice. It is it's pretty country. So I said I got to make more money. Uh, so I started looking around, and I started looking into commercial diving, hard hat. And at the time, you know, there had just been an oil embargo, you know, in the mid 70s. And, you know, hey, we got to explore more. So they were popping up oil fields and oil rigs in the Gulf, in the North Sea. And, uh, you know, the more risky it was, the more money you made. And that was like, this is really a hundred, a hundred and fifty dollars an hour. And they go, yeah. And if you want to be a saturation diver where you go down on a bell and you stay down for a week at a time, you know, doing your work and then going back to the bell, living in a little bubble, they go, that's like, you know, we'll pay you $200 and more. And so I like, what's the, what's the highest paying job? They go, oh, rescue diver. And I go, really? A rescue diver? Yeah. Yeah. You just wait on the, on the tender. And then if there's an emergency and they have emergencies and, you know, you got to go down and get that diver, find him first. And then, you know, if he's uh, if he's untethered from his umbilical, you know, you're going to have to do a search and, you know, you'll be trained how to do a search. And it's just an ever expanding circle, you know, but you're in the dark and it's cold and, you know, you have limited air supply. And, you know, you're walking around in a circle hoping that the tinder, a topside, is, you know, reading that right and being able to, you know, not jam this or have that cut. Communications were difficult because you were breathing what they call a heliox mix. So you had a real high tone, you know, you like Daffy Duck. And it was, yeah, it was really <laughs> I, hard to understand. I never even thought about that. The oh, comms, my God. The comms coming back from that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was comical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you start laughing at yourself, hearing yourself talk, you know, because it was a narcotic, you know. All gases are narcotic at, a, at enough depth, but they used helium so the nitrogen narcosis wouldn't occur. So the nitrogen was very low, the helium was higher, and then the rest of it was oxygen, which still had to be parsed out. So the partial pressure. So that's another thing, you know, and you're doing a bounce dive. You're bouncing down, you know, finding your, your victim, trying to stabilize them and get them to the top or back in the bell. You know, sometimes they had emergency bells where you go down, then go from the bell. So anyway... Uh, that was big, big money, but it was big, big risk. So I signed up for it because I thought, okay, I'm going to work for two years. I'm going to make $200,000. We're going to buy a home. We're going to have money. We're going to make it good investments and we'll never have to work another day in our lives. Sounds good. <laughs> Timing is everything. Okay. All of a sudden, the North Sea, all these, you know, all these wells and these, you know, tests are coming through. Now there's a glut of oil. Now, eh, we don't need so many commercial divers. And I, I heard that when I was finishing up my tech school. I had to go to an eight-month tech school on how to be a hard-hat diver. But at the same time, the more divers, the more oil in the ground and in in undersea, the more divers they needed, the more accidents and injuries were occurring. So guess what they didn't have? They didn't have any diver medics. So the owner of the Ocean Corporation, I'll never forget, Larry Cushman, he hired this doctor, G. Gordon Doherty, who was a Bay City, Texas, industrial medicine doctor. And they approached me and they go, we want to ask you a couple questions. What's your background in Vietnam? Because you put medic. And I go, yeah. 
They go, well, how, do you, how are your skills now? I go, well, pretty good because, you know, as a lifeguard, I was, you know, sometimes I'd have to do CPR and sometimes I had to do this and that. And then I was, uh, you know, medic on an ambulance, you know, beforehand. And they go, well, here's what we're thinking. We want to start the National Association of Diver Medical Technicians. And that doctor right there, Gordon, is going to head it up. But he needs help. He needs real street medicine skills. And he doesn't have it. He's college educated. And he's good at what he does. But he needs somebody like you that's been on the street. Can you take your skills and put them underwater? I go, well, what's the difference? I'm just breathing air, right? It's still there. I still have to do that. He goes, well, you know, it's going to be different, but we'll show you, okay? So from now on, any class that you want to go to or take, we'll pay for at this school. But you were thinking about, you know, being into non-destructive testing or analysis or just be, you know, a hotshot, you know, saturation diver. I think we've got something better for you that you'd like. How would you like to head up the program? I'm like, oh, hell yes. Yeah, now this is a leadership role, and I get to create something. So I created a whole course on emergency medicine for divers, which got approval from the National Association of Diver Medical Technicians. And it was basically an ambulance service for deep-sea divers. You know, we need a guy who's first a diver and then a medic, okay? And it's a lot easier to train a medic to be a diver than it is a diver to be a medic, you know, and a lot sooner. You know, we're set up for teaching divers, you know. So it was a beautiful blend. And to work with those two guys was the height of professionalism and mentorship. You know, Gordon, he mentored me. He goes, yes, we need this and we need that and we did that. And I go, based on what? And he goes, the people that come to me injured. He goes, I'm getting all the calls in because I'm in Bay City, Texas. That's the first landing spot. That's the quickest spot from all these golf rigs. He goes, you know, the helicopters are bringing them to me. You know, or Galveston. You know, I meet him in Galveston because there's a big hyperbaric chamber there. So I learned hyperbaric medicine. I learned, you know, saturation diving. And then I put it all in, you know, let's put the package together. It was the same thing that pararescuemen do, you know, but we're just going deeper. You know, they do scuba. We go deeper and our equipment is a lot more complex with the gas mixture and all that, you know, and uh, it's, a, it's a heavy rig. You know, you got you to gotta really be able to do it. So anyway, so it worked out real well, and uh, we were able to reach out to the the penitentiaries in Texas, and we said, we have a trade school for you guys if you want it. It's highly risky, but you get to be by yourself, offshore, make good money, and you can't do drugs, but once you get back on shore with all that money, we don't care what you do. You just got to show up. You do all the drugs. Exactly, <laughs> right, yeah. You, we just got to have one understanding, you know, you can't do this. And I never met a more motivated demographic than an ex-con who says, I got a shot here. I got a shot of making $150,000 a year, honestly, okay? And, you know, I don't need drugs. You know, I've learned to do without drugs in prisons. You know, it was still available, but, you know, it wasn't a good thing to be doing. So, you know, I worked on physical fitness, and we took these guys through qualification courses and it was real simple we put a big big tin bucket over their head and we started banging on it sorry no problem we started banging on it and the guys who got rattled was like well you're not good for a hard hat diver you know you just you know you're getting a little bit wiggled out you know 
And then it was, you know, doing physical stuff, you know, climbing this, hauling that. And, you know, the hose that they had to wrap up, you know, and teaching them a few skills. So after, you know, three or four days of qualification course, we had our we had our source. And then, you know, teach them how to be medics. They were highly motivated, you know. I can save a life. Good. I can save my own life. Even better, you know. So it was good. So I had a real good experience with that. And then I got a call from Pompano Beach Fire Rescue saying, hey, where you been? We've been looking for you. We thought you were in Charlotte, North Carolina, working for an ambulance company. We heard you got a degree in fire science technology through Central Piedmont Community College. Well, we want you to come on down and interview for us. And at the time, you know, I was, you know, working as a, you know, deep sea rescue diver. But the risk, the time away from my family, you know, there were a lot of negatives to that thing. And I wanted to be a family man. So I'm like, you know what? I could work as a lifeguard on my off days, be a firefighter, paramedic, got good benefits, got a good pension, got a good insurance company, you know, not nearly as risky as being a deep sea rescue diver. Yes, I'll come down and interview. So I did. They liked me. I liked them. Bam. Got hired by Pompano Beach. They go, don't worry about reciprocity. You know, we're going to send you to paramedic school because you got to go through the Florida paramedic program, you know. What you did in Texas and, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina and with this diving company is great. But, you know, we need this and, you know, we need to send you through the fire academy, but we'll pay for it all. And, you know, you'll just be on, you know, that kind of duty, you know, academic duty. So for the first four or five months, you know, I was doing going to the paramedic qualification at night and going through the fire academy during the day. It was great. I loved it. You know, it's like, hey, I'm on vacation, you know, just more training, you know, more training. It was good. It was good. So uh, that's how I got on with the fire department. And uh, the, co- the program was fairly short because I quickly realized that it's, it's rewarding to have the skill set. It's very frustrating to know that in the grand scheme of things, you might save 2 to 5% of your cardiac patients. That's just the nature of it. You can't get to them fast enough. If you were next door and they had a heart attack, and you found out within the first 30 seconds, it's still, you're still going to have a hard time resuscitating them. Once the per- the body loses, you know, oxygen or the capacity to circulate, it's going to be really tough. And what are you bringing back? You know, I mean, sometimes, you know, the brain damage is already there. The atrophy and the, you know, the, the lack of oxygen to the heart muscle, it's going to be a comprised organ. You know, it's it's not a it's not a good outcome most of the time. Now, some people say that's a dirty little secret, but it's not a secret. Doctors knew that. They see it all the time. I and, talk about this a lot because I was an absolute shit magnet in my career and I never had a single code save for fourteen years. And just ooh. I had the GI bleeds, the triple A's, the you Oof. know, you name it, the the everything. Everything that you don't come back from. Yeah. And just, you know, also those those cardiac arrests where yes. the person is so diseased, yes. the heart ref- is just can't. It's it's yes. broken. Exactly. But when you think about the way we're trained, it's like, you know, the mega codes and all these things. It's like yes. you do this, this, and this. Yes. They're not saying every time it's gonna come back. But right. you know, there's an expectation that sometimes you're gonna save it, you know, and you see right. these stories of the, the guy that came back to the station with the cake and all that stuff. Right. But on the other hand, we set a lot of our responders up for failure yes. if we don't underline 
Yes. Like the same with structure fires and searches and things. Yes. A lot of times you're too late. That's a lot right. of times they're dead, their dogs are dead, you know, and it's very doom and gloom. But I think you have to put that in as well. Otherwise, like me, subconsciously, what the fuck? 14 years, I was diligent as a, as a EMT and then a paramedic. I did extra training. You know, I knew my protocols. You know, these codes went well, but they still fucking died. Right. A hundred percent, James. And that's the truth. And that's a hard truth to take. And that's a hard truth to take home with you. And, you know, I had an ER guy tell me one time, and again, and me and the team, everything went right. You know, I mean, the 12 gauge went right in. We got that going. It was a rollover I-95 at 2 a.m., you know, poor lighting, raining. We pulled that guy out. You know, it took a hearse tool to get access to him. And, you know, we got him on the backboard. We're doing compressions. All of a sudden, we're getting sustainable rhythm. All right, you know, let's get him to the hospital. We get him there and can't sustain a, a, a viable rhythm. And I'm like, crap. And we were all, you know, just down about it because we put our, we put our, our heart and soul into it. And he, he took us all aside and he goes, Hey, just remember this. You can't save everybody. And I remember thinking, and all the way back on the truck, we were talking, can we save anybody? I mean, this is really, we don't like the odds. And that was the first time I voiced it. And in unison, I got, yeah, yeah, no, this sucks. And this, this is starting to suck a lot. And what was especially frustrating to me and what changed my whole perspective and my career path from that point on was remembering that most of the cardiac and strokes that I responded to, it was, was in the home. It was usually a male individual in their 50s or 60s. They were in the same element. They all had the same common denominators. An ashtray full of cigarette butts, a empty bottle of bourbon or hard liquor, an empty bag of chips or popcorn or some other fast food, a lot of well-worn remotes and a well-worn Barca lounger or sofa. And it was like, okay, this guy killed himself slowly by his diet and his lack of exercise. And, you know, it only took something small to trigger something monumentally destructive and fatal to him. And he should have seen it coming because this probably happened, you know, if he's 50, he's probably been doing this for 30 years. And what did he think he could get away with? I mean, it's like this, this makes no sense. Okay. I'm a reactionary. And if I was a primary intervener and influencer, I think I could save more people. And at the same time, I started reading and hearing about personal training in California, you know, the movie star, this guy, Jake, you know, trainer to the movie stars, you know, and I read where he not only was making a hundred dollars an hour, which was four times what I was making as a medic, but he was changing lives and he was doing it and having fun at it and making good money at it. And I thought, you know what? This is worth a shot. And I shared it with my wife and she goes, oh, no, 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 please, please. You're in a good, secure position. You're going up the chain. You're going to be an officer. You know, we're, we're secure. There's a pension. There's a good, you know, uh, insurance policy here. I said, we can replace all that. 
I said, the thing is, is that, you know, I'm not happy being futile in my career. I think I can do more good coming into people's lives, even if it's just a couple of months sooner than what this, you know, event that's going to happen to them. Because I can give them a new life. And it's simple. It's just do the right thing, you know. Eat less, move often. It's as simple as that. You know, now the hard part is taking action and they don't think they can do it, but I can tell them from experience, you know, you can, I've seen it happen. I've helped myself a number of ways by adapting exercise and adopting a healthier lifestyle. You know, so there's a lot of things that people can do directly to help them. And yet they just don't, they aren't convinced that it'll work for them. And people like Jake are convincing them that it's worth a try. And I think I have the same motivational and inspirational skills that they have because I've used that on myself, my own self-talk. You know, I found how to biohack my body. And at the time, I was a triathlete and, you know, was training for the Ironman and all that stuff, which came later. But at the time, you know, in 1984, 85, I'm like, I, I can do more. This is a very rewarding, you know, career. I love working at the fire department with my brothers and, you know, I'm teaching them high elevation rescue. And these are skills that I learned in Vietnam, how to rappel out of a helicopter. And, you know, we have the first, you know, Florida's first high elevation rescue team. You know, we're right here and, you know, we're doing it. We haven't had any fatalities, no mishaps, no injuries. You know, we're, we're, we're the stars, you know, and they love what they do, you know. And we've got a dive rescue team and, you know, it's all good. So, you know, I was heavily involved in, in training others and, and, and guiding others and being an instructor level, you know, tradesman. But this way I could do it on my own without being naysayed by the chiefs that don't want to have any change. They don't appreciate me coming in and telling them what they're eating is hurting them. They don't appreciate me telling them that, you know, exercise is good for them. You've got a perfect environment. You know, you've got a big bay out there. You know, I mean, we could put this over there and that over there and not intrude on anybody's space. And, you know, people are willing to donate equipment. No, no, we don't want to hear it. Okay. All right. You know, and when I, when I found a chief or got to a chief or a chief got to me and said, Hey, you know, we, we want to start a physical fitness program. The NFPA was starting to allude to that, you know, national fire prevention saying, Hey, these firefighter deaths, you know, it ain't from burns. It's from cardiac arrest. while you know, on the fire scene, you know, this is what you guys are dying of. Okay. Well now that's avoidable. Yes, that's avoidable. You got a risky job where you can't avoid, you know, some injuries and some disasters, but you can avoid killing yourself easily. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I did it and it worked and the chiefs loved it, but the rank and file was like, you know, don't make me do this. I don't have to. I'm over my probationary period. If I want to go in there at 501 every day and sit in that Barker lounger and eat ice cream all night and watch TV, which we usually do, I'll do that. And, you know, get out of my face and don't try and inspire me anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, right. So I found an audience for it and I took a leave of absence and within the year, I was making three times what I was making as a firefighter paramedic and my lifeguard job on the beach. And I was getting a lot more self-satisfaction and gratitude from other people saying, oh, it changed my life. Oh, you're doing this is great. You know, my wife loves it. You know, she loves how I feel now. How I'm, you know, I'm, my whole attitude has changed, you know. 
She wants to do it with me. Fantastic. The kids want to do it. Hey, can you train my kid for soccer? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it really started to snowball. And very quickly, I became the trainer's trainer, you know, because I was using science, not just, you know, motivation, drill instructor, drop and give me 50. You know, that's dangerous. That's stupid. You know, that doesn't really, you know, it's, uh, it's intimidating, you know, that kind of attitude consistently. That, that's all you got. You know, you need a bigger bag of tricks. You need to show people how they can be their own trainer, you know, make them an own, an expert with their own body. That's what, that's the real gift. You know, don't make them dependent on, you know, your ability to be a drill instructor, you know, and admonish people, you know, they'll never be good enough, you know, and you can't do this. And, oh, yes, I can. Oh, okay. You know, that, uh, it's, that's short lived, you know, and that's, uh, in the end, you know, people end up injured. You know, because they'll 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 extend their ability and their capacity. So anyway, so forty two years later, here I am doing the same thing, and uh, I've been blessed by my clients uh, the whole way. You know, they inspire me, and uh, I I from the very first client, I said, "It's not me, it's you. You're doing all the work. You're the one spending the money. I'm just showing you showing up to." And just like I was a, when I was a paramedic, primum non nocere, do no harm. I said, that's the first principle in personal training, just like it was in emergency medicine. And just like it is in everything, you know, you know, don't screw up. Don't, don't do any harm to yourself or to others, you know, and it's as simple as that. And, uh, you know, keeping that principle as a precept to now let's go through the self program. What's self? It's an acronym, strength, endurance, leanness, and flexibility. Okay, let's get going. Well, before that, we got to go through the STEP program. What's the STEP program? Screen, test, evaluate, and program. Okay, I want to find out what limitations and obstructions you have to rigorous exercise. You know, then I want to test for the other elements, you know, your strength, endurance, leanness, flexibility. Then I want to evaluate all the data that we collect, and we can do that in one session. And then I'm going to create a program for you that's tailor-built and customized for you and a nutrition program that will help you reach your goals faster, safer, and more efficiently. And it made sense to them. And it was all about them. It was personal because I was professional. And it was perfect because you could adapt. Well, going on the reactive versus proactive first, I, I remember – you know, being in my CrossFit class. So I would coach CrossFit classes, but then I created one. It used to be called Unfuck Yourself, and then I rebranded it um, to focus on the tactical profession. So I call it Tactical Athlete Strength and Conditioning, TASC. But the, the whole point was to try and stop those people from the last face they ever see being my ugly mug, leaning over them with an ET tube. Because this, I've talked about this many, many times. It's such a shame that the paramedics and firefighters of the world, certainly, you know, the world, but knowing America, that they don't have a voice. They are the perfect documentarians of the problems that we have in society, from the gang violence to the addiction to the obesity. And yet there is no Jocko Willink of the fire service. You know, there is no, you know, Biden or Trump of the fire service. And thank God there isn't. But <laughs> that's, that's another thing. But I mean, you know, the point being, the TV cameras are not aimed at the people who truly have seen what we see and say, look, this is what works. This is what's not working. And so being a coach and a firefighter, you get to be both proactive and reactive. So I totally understand that. I want to pull some of the observations on 
the professions that are listening though so you've got pjs you work with a lot now so it's a beautiful kind of full circle there you know you've worked with that that um those organizations and some of them other maritime law enforcement military professions and then fire what are some of the let's start with the problems first what are some of the challenges or issues that you see or resistances to the right kind of strength and conditioning in some of these tactical athletes well, you have to have it all based on what is necessary. So the functionality of an exercise should be directly relational to the tasks that they are presently doing or they may be called upon to do. You know, you have to make it just like an athlete. Okay. Are you going to train an NFL athlete to do things that are similar or specific for NBA? Of course not. So it has to be sports specific. So for the firefighter, for the paramedic, for the military pararescue, it has to be task-specific. So that's the foundation. If it's not – if they can't relate to how does this apply to my job or how does this apply to my, my purpose, then they're not going to buy in. Yeah. And they've been sold a bill of goods so many times, especially in the nutritional field. You know, my gosh, you know. I mean, it's just, it's so corrupted. And it's, you know, it's the flavor of the week. You know, oh, you got to have more of this vitamin, you know. Well, how do you know? How do you know what somebody needs or can make a recommendation? And I don't care if you're with Nutrisystem. I don't care if you're with, you know, uh, Thorn. I don't care if you're with any of the top brands. It's kind of a scattergun approach. And, you know, with these fat-soluble vitamins or minerals, these can be hazardous if they're in overabundance, you know, because, you know, now the body has to work on excreting them or worse, they have to store them in fat. So when you start to lose fat, now these elements, these molecules become active again. So it's now it's like, my God, that was the worst experience I ever had trying to lose 20 pounds or 50 pounds, you know, or 100 pounds because all the toxins that have been stored, you know, the fat soluble, now they're getting released and I'm experiencing, you know, Vitamin D toxicity or this or that. You know what I mean? So the, the, the problem is, is that most trainers, and I speak with a, a note of that was me. Okay. I'm just as guilty of it in the beginning of my career as others are, but we're lazy. We think we know it all. If we know how to do an exercise properly or if we know how not to kill somebody, okay, you know, hey, here's a heart rate monitor, which is good. It's one of the basic elements you should have, okay? It gives you an objective, gives you a goal. It gives you alerts, you know, so you don't go too high with a heart rate. And you can also check heart rate variability, polar, electro. I mean, I was using those back in 84. And I was the first ones to be able to give a printout, you know, that Quantum XL, $350. I had a limited amount of money I could invest in this company, this business I was creating for myself while I was a firefighter. And I remember my, my wife at the time saying, you know, you're spending what? <laughs> you did what? <laughs> and I'm saying, trust me. I go, with this hardware and this piece of equipment, this heart rate monitor, you know, I know as a paramedic, you know, 
how to keep people in the safe zones. And I know as an athlete, as a triathlete, you know, how you should train in different zones, you know. Even though you're ultra endurance, you still need to get anaerobic. Just like the sprinter, even though they're primarily anaerobic for their event, they still need to have a good aerobic base. You know, LSD, long, slow distance, you know, that's that's helpful. You know, that builds up, you know, a lot of elements and a lot of metabolites that will, you know, come into play with that 40-yard sprint. So anyway, I don't want to get off the track here, but as trainers, as professionals, we're lazy. We haven't held the industry to a higher standard because anybody can call themselves a trainer. Anybody can call themselves a coach. Anybody can get a very nice-looking certificate, and it means nothing other than I could take a test. And some of them don't even require a test. And sometimes it's an open book test. So what are you really showing somebody when you slap it down? You know, are you qualified? Oh, yes, I got this and that. I'm much more interested in what's been in your experience. And then you look at them as a person. Do they look fit? Do they eat healthy? Do they know this? Do they know that? You know, a lot of time they know no more about fitness or nutrition or exercise than the person they're talking to, who's a rank amateur, who's never exercised a day in his life or her life. So the bottom line is, you know, we're not holding each other accountable. And that's one of the things that is a big deficit in our industry. But the cream rises to the crop. Uh, the, the, the cream rises to the top. And uh, the successful ones are successful for a reason. So, And eventually, the ones who are successful for reasons other than experience and attitude and inspiration and, and uh, altruism, uh, you know, they get exposed and, you know, they'll crash and burn. Uh, but... The good ones are constantly seeking new information, new ways to help their clients. And now there has been such a explosion of new biometric analysis in the way of training smarter, training safer, training better, eating better, finding out all this food that I've been taking in, how is it impacting my body? What's really in there? I want to track the inside of my body rather than just track a date on a calendar. Because you're really not old determined by your date. You're old determined by your state of health or disease. And the problem is, is that typical exams, you go to the doctor, doctor, I need an exam. Okay. What they're checking for are diseases. They're not checking for your state of wellness. It's up to us to say, okay, I might be free of disease, but that doesn't mean I'm healthy. I'm just free of disease. How healthy am I? How well am I? And about five years ago, I'll never forget this, I was listening to a podcast, and back then, they even call them podcasts, this was an interview. The guy's name was Gil Blander. And I'll never forget, real thick Israeli accent, but what he was saying was just unbelievably intelligent, and astute, and I was just 100% in agreement with him. But he was telling me things that I'd never heard of before. One of them was like the primary predominant uh, biomarker for longevity is not your DNA, okay? That just is a, that's a map. That's not your destiny. That's not your outcome because that's only a small percentage that will determine how long you live. And is it really important to find out or extend your long lifespan? Shouldn't you be focused more on your health span 
how many years will I be healthy? I hope it's to the point of the same marker that determines my longevity. So I want to be healthy as long as I live. And it's possible to do that now. And he was pointing out things like he goes, well, you know, being a, a, a scientist at MIT and teaching at Harvard. And, you know, he was one of the top, top scientists that were getting into age extension and longevity and health. And he said, you know, we're, di- we're discovering now that glucose is a real good indicator. You know, fasting glucose levels is a real good indicator of our longevity. He goes, because, you know, if it's high, well, you're in a state of inflammation, you know, and that's certainly not good for every cell in our body. So to monitor that, to me, in my opinion, from the studies that I've seen, I would say that that's more of a indicator. And we're starting to develop a consensus. And he was right on the verge of starting this company that came out with this tracking system called Inside Tracker. And it's brilliant. It gives you a blood test that checks biomarkers that is primarily based in nutrition. And it says, and it, the report is, and it comes out in beautiful English, you know, bar graphs or, you know, uh, pie charts or Venn diagrams. And it goes, we're going to score you. We're going to give you a score from one to a hundred. And if, the optimal zone is being right in the middle and you hit right, you know, 50, then you're optimized. You're optimized. But the fact that you are, could be out of the optimal curve, either too high of something or too low of something, whether it be a vitamin or nutrient or mineral or whatever, you know, a food substance, we'll be able to tell you, well, you're a little high in this. You don't need as much of this kind of food or this vitamin. Or, you know, you're a little below the optimal. If you were to change this about your diet and have maybe one extra serving of a cruciferous vegetable like broccoli or cauliflower, and they're identifying actual actionable things you can do. It's not you're low in this, and I don't know what to tell you because I'm not a nutritionist or that's outside of my wheelhouse or, you know, I got to stay in my lane because, you know, I can't act like a nutritionist. I'm just a trainer or I'm just a uh, an MD or gastroenterologist. No. They are saying, you know, here is what you really are inside. And that inside tracker was the most impactful tool that I have ever used, aside from a heart rate monitor, which I use on a day-to-day basis for my personal training clients. Polar is brilliant. That Bluetooth low energy, I mean, I've used it on scuba divers that are at 90 feet because it's waterproof down to to, uh, 35 meters. And so now I'm checking stress levels and, you know, my sons, you know, who I taught scuba diving, you know, I had a heart rate monitor on them, you know, and again, it stored it. So at the top, when we went state, you know, while we were changing over tanks, you know, and degassing, I'm going in, I'm looking at it, I go, look, son, you know, you did real well here, you know, and it even extrapolated, we could be able to tell heart rate variability, which is the sensitivity of the heart, which is recovery and resilience. So anyway, so there's all these biomarkers, there's all this hardware and software and programs that these scientists have come up with and have have manufactured and brought to the market for personal trainers, for coaches, for exercise physiologists, for the medical community, and for the lay people, you and me, okay? If we didn't have a lick of exercise science, we could still use this and benefit from it because it tells you eat more of this, eat less of that, do this, do that, and you'll live longer. 
And by the way, we have this other feature on the side. So if you do inside tracker, we'll tell you what your real age is, your inner age, not your date on a calendar. So you have the body time-wise of a 70-year-old, but you have the body inside and all the systems working, cells, tissues, organs, and systems, not just your gastrointestinal, but your cardiac, your neurological. You have the body of a 60-year-old or a 50-year-old or an 80-year-old. You know, it's, you know, it's either positive or negative or spot on. You know, you're exactly your age bio- biologically as you are chronologically. And that, to me, it, it enables a person to realize they can take charge of their future and they can have a healthy, healthy total life. And there's nothing more valuable. And again, you can see from the pictures who I've trained billionaires and they have recognized the most valuable commodity on earth is not money not gold not this possession or that position possession it's their health and some of these found out early enough to have dramatically changed i mean i've got clients that you know run three fortune 500 companies simultaneously but their priority is before i go you know, fly off to Chicago or to LA or to New York for this meeting or that meeting or looking at this or looking at that, I'm going to get my exercise in. And I was meeting these people willing to do what other trainers weren't willing to do. And that's get up at 4 a.m. so I could be at their house at 5 a.m. And they had given me the task of build a gym in this room. I'm going to show up here. I want you to show up here. Okay. This is what I want you to do for me. Okay, and I will pay you well. And they did. And the more I was able to show them positive change and the more they experienced a reawakening of their body and then a, a, a reverse, we, we reverse engineered aging for them. They had more vitality. They had more energy. They had more uh, recovery. You know, they, they, they increased the quality of their sleep because I was telling them there's this new product out called New Calm. And it's, it's soundtracks and it's a biomedical disc where it permeates, you know, the skin and goes down into, you know, the sixth vagus nerve and the vagus nerve encircles the heart. And then it also travels, you know, up through the spinal column and goes into your brain and then it trains your brain. And, you know, a certain tone that you listen to will either bring you up in harmony or resonance or bring you down if you want to go sleep we put you down in this zone a little deeper you know then your recovery a little blessed you're in some other type of recovery if we want you to amp up you know you've got something you know physical you know that's going to be exertional you know we've got this ignite track for you you know and it works every time and it's it's there's no drug there's no pharmacy so i can sleep better at night because of a appliance a piece of hardware and a sound system and a biomedical disc that is transdermal that gives me the quality of sleep that I need to be able to perform the other 12, 16, sometimes 20 hours a day. And it's amazing. But the science is out there. It's proven. They've sold millions of these. They're about to explode on the world because everybody in the whole world is full of stress and it's unsustainable. And again, it's just, it's so degrading. It's so, it's so detrimental and destructive on the human body. You know, we need to manage our stress better than alcohol, 
or some kind of, you know, other diversion like food. And unfortunately, that's the first go-to elements that people go to because our advertising promotes that. You know, we become lab rats for the food industry. And I could talk a whole another five hours about that, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, fat, sugar, and salt in the right ingredients, which were determined by the cereal companies in the 20s and 30s, and then by McDonald's in the 50s and 60s. They know the exact amount, and why do you think they call it a happy meal? You know, serotonin is what they call the dose. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. We get a flood of that with the right kind of food elements, fat, sugar, salt, and the right elements and mixtures. And so what we're eating is perpetuating the fraud of what they say is nutritious, is anything but. And, you know, we need a transition back to real whole food and less of it because the quality of food can not just sustain us but keep us going at the hop and mice level. So I've come across in 42 years the science of heart rate tracking, the benefits of increasing the quality of sleep, the benefits and the inspiration of testing people before, during, and after because those kind of progress reports, whether it be body composition or strength or increase in leanness, increase in muscle mass, or just simple increase in mobility. Hey, I don't hurt as much. I'm not as sore. I can do this. I can touch my toes. I can tie my shoes. Functional. They can relate to the functional part. And again, from we're, we're a chemical and electrical unit, our bodies. And how we treat those really determines the quality of our life. And try as we, as we must, as we like, to divert ourselves and distract ourselves with nice shiny objects like cars and money and status and this and that. It all boils down to, you know, if you don't treat your body right, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be you, you won't have reached your true top physical or physiological potential. And that's a shame because everybody deserves that opportunity. So we need to get away from the fraud of advertising and embrace the science of biohacking because the science is out there now and now it's available for the average person. And by that, I include trainers. So it's my mission. It's my aspiration. It's my calling now to help other trainers help their clients. So I am ready to launch a program besides me running a facility, besides me still working with military teams on, you know, their tactical physical fitness training. I want to address my industry and go back full circle and say, I can tell you from 42 years of experience the right way to do something because trust me, I've done it the wrong way. Every time, every road, every direction, but the right one. But I never gave up on finding the right answer that was good for either that particular person or my clients as a whole. And I should not hold that in. I should share that with you to try with your people and you can, you'll be confirmed too. And again, that's, that's how you are really successful in your trade is be able to give people, your clients, your customers, your, the people that put trust in and, and, and honesty in you to give them the highest and best that's out there for what they need. And to me, there's no higher calling. So I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, yeah. you touched on a couple of things. I mean, Thorne, I'm a big fan of, and they, me I think, too. I don't know if it's 
Um, what was the name of the, the tip, the blood test that you said? Inside Tracker. I think I want to say that that's who does the blood testing for Thorn. I might be wrong, but they did this super comprehensive drug test now. And I know it's not Thorn themselves; it's, they partner with someone, right? And he was the bar graphs and yes. the, you know the biological age, so it may well be them. Yep. And then Newcom. I just want to circle around. I came across this only two short months ago. It's changed my life. It's changed my wife's life. My my son. 16 years old jim was talking about you know the post-puberty shift and the oh. teenagers don't get as deep sleep yes Every, i've just went there I, I had to leave early to come down here yes and all i could hear was the the uh, yes. the rain the sonic speaker <laughs> yes, you know right. so deep sleep <laughs> i can't speak highly enough of you know of the two things that you've talked about yes. um i'm actually going to be talking to jim paul after about you know when we're done with this pretty much but, fantastic um but yeah so I love the fact that, you know, as you said, 40 plus years in the industry, yes. the, the machines that you show me, the innovation mind that you have, some are from Europe and some are from here and some are from there. And, you know, the, the platform that, that mimics, you know, the bow of a ship or a helicopter working off that. I mean, yes. there's so many amazing, interesting things. I think you would be an amazing human being to have as the trainer's trainer. I mean, you're already doing it now, but to be speaking to the people out there where can people find you or the facility online and then where are you projecting that content is going to be when you finished it well the thing is i that's interesting uh thank you for asking because uh i'm looking at different outlets and avenues of approach and you know how i'm going to branch out and make the art of personal training and the business of personal training, which I taught years ago in seminars and workshops, and it was very successful. And I just got away from it because I just love the one-on-one -on -one or small group training. And again, training these people that are highly successful in, in the world, you know, they run fortune 500 companies and, you know, they, they're, they're, they're extremely similar to are soldiers. They can be in a hostile environment. It's a, it's a moving target. It's changing, uh, elements. Um, you have to, you know, uh, you have to survive and thrive if you can. Um, you have to cover, you know, cover your team. Um, you have to be empathetic without being sympathetic to the point of being distracted by small other issues. You know, you got to keep your eye on the target and you got to advance. And you, a lot of times, are in very austere environments under, you know, hostile conditions. And that's just the environment, you know, the missed airplane trip, um, you know, the diversion over here, uh, the crisis in, you know, one of the, the subsidiaries that you manage, you know, part of the big conglomerate, you know, the whole, you know, grand Fortune 500, you know, is, is tapped into a lot of different companies and a lot of people, a lot of structures. There's a lot of overlay that they are ultimately responsible for and in charge of. And these people take it seriously. I mean, it hurts when they have to fire people. They don't like that. And talk about stress is telling somebody that's been with you for 20 or 25 years, we no longer have a place for you. It's not that you're not good enough. You're great. It's just that the landscape has changed. Things have happened. And boy, was that never more present than the last three years we've gone through. I mean, I myself was impacted. I went through, you know, a couple hundred members a year of after opening this place, almost 200 members immediately dropped in less than one month to 35 because they shut us down. And they shut down a facility that was a bastion of autoimmune 
training, <laughs> you know, keeping the body at top condition, keeping it in shape, being in the presence of other healthy people, you know, it just didn't make sense. So, but don't get me started. You're preaching <laughs> yeah. to the choir, so trust me. Right. So back to here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start with podcasts like this. So if you know of anybody or if anybody out there that's listening to this that would want to hear more about my project is training the trainers and then sharing with them all that I've learned from mistakes and from hitting it right once in a while and then sticking with what is right and making that as good as I can for my clients. If you know of anybody out there that is interested in that, then please contact me at TrainerSense82, that's T-R-A-I-N-E-R-S-I-N-C-E, the number's 82 at gmail.com. That's my, that's my primary email. If you want to check out my facility, club110fitness.com, that you can find that. So it's fitnessclub110.com or club1gym.com. Either one will get you to my website. Now, please understand it's a work in progress. You know, I'm in my 70s, so, you know, I didn't come up with the electronic uh, society. You know, social media is not my forte. You know, I'm on Instagram only because, you know, a couple of my clients said, uh, you got to get on there. You know, people are showing stuff that, you know, we know you can do a lot better or they haven't ever never seen. So Bill Kaiser Fitness is where I've got some old v- views. But I just got a better camera and I'm going to be doing more of these shorts and uh, we're going to have a lot more coming through, both on Instagram as well as my website. But I want to talk with you personally and find out how can I help you the most? What are your challenges? What are your goals? You know, what does it take to make you the best that you can be in the environment that you're in with the clientele that you've embraced and engaged and say, I can help? I want to help you help them. And I believe I have enough information, and I'm still very inspired. You know, again, like I said, I'm in my 70s. I feel 40. Thanks to Newcom. Thanks to Polar. Thanks to the right food. Thanks to the people that fed me when I was a child. You know, I have a lot of people to thank for that. And I went astray so many times, you know, but I've always come back to healthy food. And I think it was because I was raised on healthy food. You know, home-cooked meals 99.9% of the time. You know, and they joke and say, well, we couldn't afford to take you out. You know, it was a family of nine. You know, I couldn't afford the bill. And it was like, well, mom became an expert at, you know, feeding all of us. So, and she did it with, you know, whole food all the time. So it was, uh, it was a blessing and, uh, and in disguise. And, you know, we did get to go out to a restaurant on her birthday. So, but, you know, that's, Nine birthdays, you know. So it, uh, I know it wasn't cheap raising a family. So thanks, Dad. <laughs> and thanks, Mom. So, and again, I, I, I can always go back to, you know, my upbringing and the way I was raised. I was very blessed. But, you know, you can fix a bad habit. You can fix a bad childhood, you know. And again, I hope sometime in the future we can talk more about, you know, PTS and, uh, how, Living well and living healthy and being good to yourself is the strongest antidote to dealing with stress that has happened in your past or in your present or something that you anticipate in the future. You know, you're bracing yourself for being the best you can be regardless of your circumstances, your state of play or the environment, you know, that you're in. So you're, you're, uh, you're, you're never too old to get young again. 
while you walk the walk. I mean, you literally walk and look and move 20 years younger than you are. I'm so so fortunate. I really am. Yeah. I had good caretakers when I was injured. I rarely get ill, but the times I have, again, the people around me have been, have been beyond caring, just gracious and, and, uh, self-sacrificial. And, you know, I've got a lot of people to, uh, to thank. And I do. And uh, I, uh, I know, you know, nobody, nobody walks this earth alone. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, you know, I've been very, very blessed. So, and it started with my parents. So I give them all the credit for a healthy lifestyle that I was able to engage in because they taught me right from the beginning. So, Well, we could do another two hours. So we will down the road because we'd, I'd love to really unpack, you know, the actual strength and conditioning side, yes. talk about the mental health side. So yeah. We will kind of conclude this one, but there'll definitely be a part two for people listening. So I want to just thank you so much for the kind of show and tell before for the membership. Thank you so much for that. Um, And then also for an amazing conversation. Well, James, it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. I would do it again. Uh, And uh, again, we have a lot of common elements in regards to the fire service. So we can dig deep into that. And uh, we can, uh, I think we can help a lot of people down the road. And again, you know, we're living proof that, uh, you know, uh, every day is a new day. And, uh, you know, to, uh, to approach it and to begin it with a positive attitude, it just sets the stage and your days will get better. You know, have faith and, uh, you know, trust in, trust in the science that's been proven and, you know, be willing to try new things and, uh, and build on what you have and then share it with others. It's uh, that's what uh, that's what we're here for, you know, so everybody's at a different place in their lives. And, you know, I certainly uh, pay close attention to the ones that are way ahead of me. And uh, I'm certainly uh, honored to, you know, be asked to help those that uh, are beside me or behind me. So it's uh, it's it's been fun. And uh, I look forward to another 20 or 30 years doing the same thing, just in a more efficient manner. And that's why I want to outreach to trainers and, and uh, coaches out there. Uh, I think I've got some tricks that uh, will help you and your clients. So thank you for the opportunity.